Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Joining me on today's episode is one of the stars of the absolute horror classic Dawn of the Dead. I'm joined by Jim Crutt and I can't wait for you to hear this interview. He's absolutely awesome from start to finish and for me an absolute legend to be involved in such an iconic movie. Dawn of the Dead is a classic and it's a classic for a reason. George Romero, I believe, gave us the best horror. I'd put it up there with Jaws for me as the best horror out there. And the best thing about it is Second Sight recently have released a Blu-ray box set of this. And the detail and time they've spent on this from the packaging, the booklets, all the discs of the different cuts, the commentaries. It's an absolute wet dream if you're a fan of horror and you will absolutely love it everything that's been involved so if you are listening to this right now i hope i've juiced you up you should go and check this out honestly dawn of the dead the limited edition set is unreal and you can get it from second sight films it's it's going to be on everyone's christmas list it's absolutely superb but before we get into today's episode i like to touch base and talk about the last episode i was joined by josh from the amazing band palm reader currently still their album sleepless is my album of the year it's astonishing. If you're fans of people like Deftones, Black Peaks, Thrice, this album is for you. It's coming up on everyone's top five albums of the year lists, and rightfully so. It really is that good. I've just told you to go and check out a Blu-ray box set. Go and check out this album, Sleepless by Palm Reader. You will not regret it. But as I said, today I'm joined by an absolute legend, Jim Crutt, and I can't wait for you to hear us talking all things zombies and all things horror. So I think the best thing to do right now is to get to that interview. Here he is. Hey Jim, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Well, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you and thank you very much for having me aboard. What I want to do is, um, for the listeners out there, is take it back to the start. So when you were growing up, what made you fall in love with film or cinema? Well, I was always uh, drawn to the movies and literally uh, I fell in love with all the 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 original universal horror monsters uh you know i was thrilled by uh, everything from dracula to frankenstein to the wolfman the mummy and so on but the one that really startled me the most i'd say was the thing from outer space the original yeah and uh i was i was a young fellow at the time and it, it was uh just just such a frightening film for me that i uh left the theater and ran home that evening down the middle of the street. I lived about seven blocks from the theater. Yeah. I ran down the middle of the street all the way home. And then I backed my way, you know, <laughs> down the hallways and everything else. It was, uh, hey, a movie can have tremendous power. Massively. You know, and it doesn't have to be just because you're, you know, 12 or 14, whatever. Uh, just the impact of those images. And so that's one of the things I think that really got me involved. But the other was uh, being on stage. Because yep. I've done a lot of lot of live theater, but one of my first callings was uh, when I was, I don't know, maybe in fifth grade or something in, in school, and they were doing a school play, and I got to be Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Because I, I was tall, as Lincoln was, and I could remember the Gettysburg Address at that young age. <laughs> That's amazing. And was there any sort of actors that you were watching at a young age that made you kind of want to be an actor? I know we just talked about the thing and stuff, but were there certain actors or something in film that made you think that's something I'd like to do? 
Well, as I got a little older and I was watching films, I, I realized that some of the most iconic names we knew were, na- were known for one film. Like yeah. Bella Lugosi or um, Boris Karloff or Lon Chaney. And they may have done a lot of films, but typically there was one film that they were, for whatever character they, they created, they also created an iconic uh, legend. And that, no matter what else they did, it kind of lived with them. And even though they've passed away, the legend continues. And I just thought, that's really pretty amazing. So when you were doing, obviously, theatre work and falling in love with films and stuff, were your family supportive? or Because obviously at a young age, when you want to become an actor, it's not the most secure business to get into. So were your family supportive? or? <laughs> Well, that's that's nice that you're having fun, but are you going to get a real good job sometime? Yeah. yeah. Bills? Because uh, I know working in Pittsburgh, when I was working in live theater for about seven years, the uh, there were times I was working three jobs at a time just to make ends meet. Yeah. So when you hear about the, the struggling actor or the starving artist and all that time, you know, you, hey, put me down for one of those. Uh, I, uh, I I could identify with that. And it wasn't just me. There were a lot of people who had the passion and the interest, both in the plays, the theater, the um, the audience experience. It's just phenomenal. The interaction. Yeah. It's it's such a unique dynamic. You can never forget it, and you can never really substitute anything else for it. So uh, I, I guess I was drawn to that. It wasn't just the accolades, but just seeing people's responses. Sometimes maybe I would kid myself and say it's because I'm so wonderful on stage, but usually it's because of the way the play was written or perhaps the way it was directed. And yeah. a lot of those things were overlooked. People see the the actor and in that final scene, they say, oh man, that, that, that person's wonderful. But whoever has put those words in the actor's mouth or has coached him, don't go like this, go like <laughs> this, because you're magnified a hundred times on screen and every little motion is going to just be that much larger. So I, I owe a lot of uh, praise and credit for those who have coached me along the way. And obviously at the moment we're promoting the new film, Dawn of the Dead, um, the, the new release, but obviously this is a horror classic. Now, how did this <laughs> come about for you? Was it a case of going to an audition or did you know someone in the business? How did it come about that you got involved in this film? Well, I've been working in theater in Pittsburgh, and um, Tom Savini, uh, who did all the makeup and effects for Dawn of the Dead, he and I had been in college together in Pittsburgh. Yeah. So we also had formed, along with a few other folks, an alternative theater company at the, at the college, at the university. Uh, after graduation, we both went off into the world and the army, and he went to Vietnam as a combat photographer. And I ended up in Vietnam as a combat medic. So we both had military experience and outside world real experience. Came back, ended up back in Pittsburgh, which is not my original hometown, but I really liked the city. And I encountered Tom and Tom said, Jim, I've got this great role for you. And I said, okay, what? He said, would you like to be in a movie? And I said, well, sure, that, that sounds like fun. So uh, very shortly after that, I uh, met up with Tom at his workshop and he did the casting and made up the prosthetics that uh, were used in my scene. 
And uh, that was a fascinating insight into the back, the back picture of what was actually going on and you know, what you don't see on screen, the preparation that, that it takes to make it happen. So I really did not have to audition. No. Um, I didn't have to meet with George Romero, who did most of the casting. And, and you know, I would have to say that George brought aboard people that he trusted. Yeah. And he trusted them to do what they knew best and what he brought them on to do. And with Tom, even in the case of the uh, effects, Tom might tell George, this is what's supposed to happen next. And George, yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll do it this way. And, but Tom would control or direct a lot of those special effects because a lot of them really depended on timing. A lot of them were things that had not been done before. And they required not trying to explain to five people what they needed to do. Tom really had to be in the middle of it, literally pulling the strings, which is what he did on the top of my head uh, yeah. to make the top of my head come off. So uh, George, as I said, put a lot of trust in Tom. And if Tom said something was good and he was going to make it happen, uh, George trusted him. And can, and can you remember the first time you actually met with George himself? Sure. Um, I'd gotten into uh, all the makeup preparations and we were in the little airport building, administration building at the airport where my scenes were to be shot. And that's where I met George. And it was like, here comes the man. <laughs> he's, he's, he was a very large fellow. Uh, but he always had this kind of you know, quirky, kinky smile about uh, just like he knew what was going on and he was having a great time doing what he was doing. He knew what was happening. He trusted the people he was with and he wanted to do the best possible job with uh, the personnel, the equipment, the circumstances. And it was my first, you know, large production film. So I was a little nervous about not doing something wrong that would get me thrown off the set. Yeah. Like, hey, George, how's it going? We're in the middle of a shoot here. <laughs> yeah. Step over there and keep on going. You know, I didn't want to be involved in that sort of situation. No. Um, so when people say, okay, we need to back up because they'll be shooting in this room next and we'll be shooting on that side. Well, I could get behind the camera and I could watch what they're shooting. And in the confined spaces of that little building, um, it was really a fun thing to do to watch the the parts of the movie as they were being made. And then when outside shots were done, I got to watch how George directed and uh, just bits of coaching literally that he did because again, he brought on people who knew what they were doing and uh, he knew how to bring the best out in the people. As for, as for my scenes, um, uh, you know, where I start out under the uh, airplane wing, where I first appear, George was directing that. And Tom was busy setting up the other um, effects near the helicopter. But when it came to the helicopter itself, that area, that's pretty much when Tom took over that portion of the shooting and the direction of what was going to happen, what was going to be needed in terms of timing to make it all happen and literally come off correctly. And by the way, we did everything in one take. Wow. Um, we did have backup clothing and outfits and so forth if we needed to do another another shot, but came across uh, in one sh one shot. And uh, George said, "That's terrific." And 
and for me, it was both uh, uh, you know, a, a highlight, but also a letdown because that was the end of my participation in the movie. It's, uh, okay, Jim, you're wrapped. Mm. I mean, yes, we were doing other shooting and that doesn't involve you right now. Thank you very much. So there, there are the highs and the lows of the moment, but you know, I got to watch what was going on for a couple of days with other scenes. And uh, you know, I, I had a lot of admiration for George just the way that he kind of as a manager and as a human being was able to pull all of these talented but disparate people together, make the best use of their talents and get them on board with his ideas and concepts and move forward and literally pull it off. So uh, he was extremely impressive. If I could take just one more moment, I was at a convention uh, a number of years later and I hadn't seen George in 20, almost 30 years. and I heard he was going to be appearing in one of the other rooms at this convention location. I think it was in Maryland. And in my room were all the folks from like Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. And in the other room was Day of the Dead and you know, Land of the Dead. And I thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. So George wasn't there. I, I just wanted to run over and say hello. There was a line waiting to meet him that had formed the queue was maybe two hours before he even showed up. Wow. And it just kept going steadily all through the day. And so I figured my best time to just pop in and say hello might be at the end of the day as things wore down. And so that, that late afternoon evening, I was able to slide over into the other room and he was just talking with someone just like he started first thing in the morning you know, full of energy and just relaxed. It wasn't like, come on, I got to get you through. It was like, well, that's, that's great. And then he looked up at me and he recognized me after all of those years. And he just gave me a great big hug. Aww. And, uh, you know, how are you doing? I said, my God, what a fantastic, that was just a, I was floating. It was such yeah. a fantastic moment, Mark. It just was, uh, but again, that tells you a little bit more about who George was. Yeah, there might have been a long line, but every person he talked to and met was an individual and he really was involved with you and concerned about you. And that's what I was going to say. When you finished your shooting for your scenes, you've kind of answered it by saying you stuck around for a few days. But was it incredible to be seeing this being filmed in front of you and seeing how all these things came together and kind of the shock value because nothing had been filmed like this before you must have been on set thinking god that's gruesome and god look how violent this is well the fun thing was i knew how my effect was done and i yeah. didn't think that much about it in terms of ooh, I wonder uh, what other people were thinking but when i saw like nick tallow who was in it as one of the bikers his father was one of the airport zombies who got smashed on the head with a hammer or a yeah mallet. and i thought oh my god it looks like they're really hurting him because the effects, <laughs> even in person, look so real. And when somebody's walking across the field and they get shot and they, you feel the response, you see the responses and you see the, you know, the, the blood packs exploding. And, and how did they do that? <laughs> and so you kind of want to look around at what's going to be shot next so you can see how they're doing the final rigging. And if something doesn't come off, then it, you know, you've got to take it all apart and set it up again with the timing, whatever it might be needed. So it, it was just a, well, I have to say Tom Savini was also for a long time interested in magic. Yeah. 
And so he believed in the, uh, the idea of illusion. And if you can put that together with the things that appeared on screen that he created or had a major role in happening, ma making happen, then, then you can see where the, the love and the passion come from. It's the illusion. You believe it. Yeah. Because he also put so much uh, meticulous detail in his art. He created a lot of effects that had not been done before. He used a lot of materials that had not been combined before. So it really, for a lot of people, was a groundbreaking experience. And in some cases, how do I get this stuff off? <laughs> <laughs> and can you remember when it came out, your first reaction of when you actually saw the final cut all pieced together and in one go? It's a scary time because it was a pre premiere preview for cast and crew and everyone who had been involved. And there were a few hundred of us jammed into a theater, big screen and lots of buzz going on. And I had no idea who these other people were because literally when my ship came in, I was at the airport and there were a limited number of people there. It wasn't like at the mall where there were you know, dozens and hundreds yeah. of people. So I didn't really have familiarity with them in the other scenes, the other people. I didn't, I didn't work from a full copy of the script. I worked from what I needed to do. I was in and I, I was out. So there was all this buzz. And I, but the nice thing was a lot of the folks in Dawn of the Dead were also other actors in Pittsburgh who I either knew or had worked with. So it was a nice collegial kind of catch up as we all sort of nervously anticipated what the film was going to look like. And when you're an actor, and you haven't seen any of the rushes, you have no idea what's in the director's mind or what the final product is to be. Your, your nervous response was first, of course, is am I still in it? After the work and the anticipation and, and the nervousness, did you make it? Are you still on screen? And if you did, you kind of look really dumb. You kind of look really stupid. <laughs> How, how's this thing going to come off in, in the long run? Is, is it going to be believable? Is it going to, fit in with the rest of it or is this going to be stand out and people will scratch their heads and say, you never should have used that scene. Jeez. <laughs> so, so when the uh, lights dimmed and the cameras or the projector was rolling <clears throat> and we get caught up in the story and then it's a bit of a surprise to see, oh, well, there I am. Oh, they used that part. That's good. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm there again. Well, it's kind of nice. I'd like to see some. Oh, man, look at that. <laughs> So it was an ongoing thrill, first of all, to be involved, to be included, and to have such a spectacular or iconic scene that uh, thrilled me. And even among all of the other people in the audience, there were reactions to the scene. And of course, uh, the audiences through the years had a lot of those same responses. Some of them were horrific. Some of them were applause. Some of them were laughter and, and groans and moans and all sorts of just a wide range of responses, Mark, that um, made me wonder, how did, how did one scene get so many different reactions? I, I don't know what magic happened to bring that many different responses to one scene. And I know that a number of years later, we were doing a uh, convention in New Jersey, and there was a panel with uh, George Romero and Ken Frey and uh, a number of other folks from the Romero films. And the question came up, was that scene intended to be comical? And George just sort of smiled and uh, 
I think what he conveyed was that within his film, he wanted to bring both the sense of reality and non-reality, but also uh, inject some humor throughout. So it did have that effect, even though to many it was just over-the-top gore. So depending on your own state, I guess, at the time, it was your own interpretation. That's amazing. And the fact that people are still so obsessed with this film, like you said, you go to Comic-Cons and these um, mm -hmm. signing events, it's, it's become such a cult film now. And the fact that we're now getting this Blu-ray release that people are going crazy for, what do you think it is about it that makes it still so successful, even today? It's, a, it's amazing to me because, as you say, I've done a number of conventions and I've seen families, you know, with 10-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 60 and 70-year-olds. They've all seen the movie. And I, I told them, you know, I didn't even let my own daughter watch it until she was 16 years old. And, and when she watched it with me, we, you know, it was her birthday. She said, what? I said, what do you want to do for your birthday? She said, Dad, can we watch your film? And I said, well, sure. So we got a pizza and we were sitting there watching it. And of course, there's a lot of violence in it, especially in the opening scenes where people are getting blown away. And, you know, at 16 years old, she's fairly sensitive and wincing. And she hadn't been exposed to a lot of that in film before. So she turned to me after a few minutes and she said, Dad, you don't get shot in this, do you? <laughs> no, Angelica, I don't get shot. It's okay. It's okay. So when my scene came up and the helicopter, you know, purportedly took the top of my head off, she went, ah! <laughs> watch that again? Can we watch that again? So it was a fascination with how things were done because she knew I was, I was okay. I was sitting there right beside her. And the film at that point had been done a few years earlier. Um, there's an identification when, when people say, George Wires, you know, they'd ask George, why, why are zombies so scary or frightening? And his, his answer was, because they're your neighbors. They're the people you identify with. And I think with uh, particularly the fact that the zombies move slowly, it's not like a, a zooming past that you have no connection with them. You can say, oh, well, that person might have been a, a nurse or a football player. Oh, or a garage mechanic, or he was a police officer, or whatever it might have been. So suddenly you can see that these zombies, even though they're a horde or a mass of moving flesh, they each had an individual backstory of some sort. And from that, you buy into it more because you can identify with it. It's not like a super space fantasy that you'll never experience. This is happening to a large extent in a mall shopping mall where many people are familiar and they go on a daily basis they had the familiarity with it so there was just so much i'd say in, inherent buy-in to the concept and the people and the characters whatever you saw on screen imagine that that could happen as fantastic as parts of it may be uh whether it had a scientific validity or not you get swept up into it. It's that uh, willing suspension of disbelief. Absolutely beautifully put. And did you ever get to see the remake of the film? I did see the remake. And uh, when people have asked me what I thought of it, I said, well, it's a completely different film with the same name. 
because although there were some references to the original, uh, the director did his own take on it, and that's fine. And a lot of people like the movie on its own. But in my mind, I think it probably should have had another name assigned to it. Yeah. It was just that different, and it didn't... Some some remakes, as you know, Mark, are all uh, shot-for-shot re- replications of the original. Yeah. And that can or cannot be uh, enjoyable or annoying, depending on... Come on, give me a new interpretation. You see plays that are done in Greek theater that are still done today. And the reason that they're done today, uh, and plays from Shakespeare's time, is that there's a new interpretation of it. If you see the movie Warm Bodies, that's Romeo and Juliet. That's a zombie story. And it uses the same storyline as Romeo and Juliet. In fact, the zombie's name is R, and the the girl's name is Jewel, Julie, you know. So some of the storylines can be, I wouldn't say um, timeless or universal, but it's the new interpretation that can bring us forward and make it more relevant to where we are today, uh, incorporate some contemporary, contemporary themes. So I don't have any problems with it, but just the fact that it had the same name is a little offing to me. I think we're up for time now. I think we have 20 minutes and I think you've literally just gone over. So I didn't want to keep you too long, but um, I did want to thank you for your time today. And it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And every time I talk about this film, I now just want to go and watch it. And it's just, you know, it's that point now where I'm now thinking, can I finish my day early? You know? Well, Mark, thank you very much for bringing me aboard again. And uh, may you and many others continue to enjoy Dawn of the Dead for many, many years. Thank you. If the world goes back to normal and we have another convention, I hope to one day meet you and have a beer with you. I'd like that. Are you buying? Of course. Okay. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Jim Crutt. What a great guy. What a lovely guy. And someone that had so much time for me. Again, so much respect and a huge, huge thanks for him for coming on the show. It was such an honour to talk to you and speak to you and find out more about being on set of this absolute classic Dawn of the Dead. I know loads of the fans of the podcast love horror and they love these releases that companies like Arrow and Second Sight and all these companies put out. I've said it at the start of today's episode, check out this Blu-ray box set, it's unreal. I'm not being paid to say this, you know I don't endorse things, I don't get paid or sponsorship, it just is the box set of the year and you will not regret checking it out. Thanks again for you guys as well at home who've taken the time to listen to today's episode, it does truly mean the world to me. If you're a big fan, jump on markandme.com, on there there's my Facebook, my Twitter, my Instagram, I will reply personally to any messages I get and also my Patreon page. I mention it on every episode because it's the thing that keeps the podcast going. It means I can host the podcast on stuff like Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, but also get loads of prizes and also record more episodes, which means more and more interviews, which means more and more basic content for you guys out there. So it's win-win and you can go on there and support me for as little as a pound. And you probably don't think it, but it makes a huge difference. So please, if you love the work I do and have checked out previous episodes, I'm putting around seven or eight episodes out a month at the moment. So for the price of literally a Mars bar or a double decker, it's insane. So please, I really do need the support. 
Thanks again for listening today. I'll be back literally with a brand new episode in a few days time. So until then, take care. I'll speak to you all soon. I'm a-sailing Oh